There is a joke about a preacher and a New York taxi cab driver that both died on the same day. And because they died on the same day, they found themselves standing in front of St. Peter at the same time. And as they entered into heaven, St. Peter gave them their reward. For the preacher, he gave him a nice cottage on the streets of gold. For the New York taxi cab driver, he gave him a luxurious, huge mansion. Well, this bothered the preacher. He didn't understand why he got a simple cottage and the taxi driver got this huge mansion. Bothered him so much that he went back to St. Peter and said, Peter, I don't understand. I've given my whole life to serving you and I'm a preacher and a pastor. And, and, and all I got was this, this little modest cottage and this taxi cab driver got this huge, luxurious mansion. Peter said, well, it's very easy to explain. Every Sunday when you got up to preach, people fell asleep. But when he got in his car and drove, everyone that rode with him prayed. (laughs) Now that's a funny joke at the expense of preachers. Um, But I tell it because that joke, like many of our observations and our thoughts and, and what we believe about heaven and the afterlife, is based more on... The, the things we see in popular literature or television or jokes or movies instead of Scripture. Matter of fact, just using that joke as an illustration, there's nothing in the Bible that ever tells us we will stand and give an account to St. Peter. We don't even know what Peter's role will be in heaven, but yet it's easy for us and it just comes off of our tongues to think that uh, in jokes and even in stories and illustrations that St. Peter is there at the gates. We have so many thoughts and beliefs, and and as we've been learning for the last couple of weeks, the danger of spiritual immaturity is when we come to those things that we really don't understand or we really don't believe, instead of trying to find what Scripture says, we just add whatever we've come to understand. We go back to our default, which is whatever we've heard or seen in movies and in television or, or read in literature. Matter of fact, a poll by the Pew Research Company that came out in 2017 surveying the United States of America, Christians and unchristians, on what they believe found that most of our belief system on heaven and hell and angels and the devil are based and grounded more in popular literature and movies and television than it is Scripture. And whether or not we want to admit it, many of us have allowed some of those beliefs to slip in. Let me give you a couple examples. When we think about Satan, if we think about Satan at all, some people in church have discounted that Satan doesn't exist. The Bible says if you believe that Jesus Christ exists, then you have to believe that there is a hell just like a heaven and there is Satan. The Bible clearly teaches that he is the enemy, the fallen angel. But when we think about Satan, so many times in our mind we have a picture of a, of a guy in red with horns and a pointed tail that comes in and reads our mind or is all over the place at all times. When the Bible tells us that he can do neither of those things. Satan is a creation. He is not omnipotent. He is not omnipresent. He can't read your mind. He can't be everywhere at the same time. And the idea of a man in red with pointed tail and horns uh, goes against... That comes from Dante's Inferno, not from Scripture. Because Scripture tells us that Satan was the most beautiful angels of all the angels. He was the angel of light. Now, we don't know what the fall did to him, but I doubt it gave him horns and a pointed tail. But it makes it easy for us to think of it in that way. 
I remember a couple of years ago, I was at a funeral where the speaker was comforting the family and he made the comment that the person who had deceased was now a guardian angel up in heaven watching over us. And I understand why that is a comfort and that can bring peace to, to those who have lost someone. But the Bible tells us that you and I, when we die, do not become angels. Angels are separate created beings with a divine purpose. We don't become angels. When you think about heaven, what is it that you think about? What's your first inclination whenever heaven comes to mind? Well, for a lot of us, we think about the streets of gold. Well, the idea of the streets of gold comes from John's view of the heavens in the book of Revelation. And the reason he said the streets are gold is because he was trying to emphasize how insignificant gold is. How the most valuable thing that we have here on this earth, gold, is so insignificant in heaven that it's what they paved the streets on. Now we don't know whether the streets of heaven are gold or whether they even have streets. But so many of us in our mind, because that's what we've sung and that's what we thought, focus on the streets of gold. What's another thing that you think of? We think about the mansions. How many songs do we sing that talks about you and I gaining a mansion when we get to heaven? Even the joke that I told earlier. Had someone before tell me, I can't wait to see what kind of mansion I get in heaven. Well, the problem with that is it's based on a misleading translation of the King James from Jesus' words in John 14, 2. He says, in my Father's house are many, and the King James says, mansions. But the problem with that is it's an old English translation from the Latin Vulgate, which the word in Greek there can mean mansions, but more times than not, it means dwelling, rooms, place to stay. And so what Jesus is saying, if you read that passage in the NIV or in the New American Standard or in the modern translations, it says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So if you want to think that you have a mansion, that's fine. But the emphasis that Jesus was making was not the size of the place that you're going to get when you get to heaven. It is that you and I have a place. That God has prepared a place for all of eternity, for you and for me. And that in His house, where He dwells, you and I will get to dwell. But what happens is we allow these other thoughts and these other things to to overwhelm us when we think about Satan, when we think about angels, when we think about demons, when we think about heaven. And the reason I bring those up is not to burst your bubble about a mansion in heaven. If you want to think that, then that's fine. I bring it up because here in our passage this morning, Paul is going to clearly lay out one of the things that we know for sure will happen in heaven. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to guess. We don't have to depend on ancient literature. We have in God's Word exactly what is going to take place. And it's very important for you and I to understand it because what we do on this earth will have profound effects on what takes place in heaven. So I want you to listen to His Word and listen to what He describes. We're going to look at the same passage we looked at last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10 through 17. You have it in your order of service, and hopefully you've been reading ahead or reading along, but listen to what Paul's saying. By the grace that God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on that. But each one of us should be careful how he builds. Now, we talked about that last week, the foundation, what it means to have the foundation of Jesus Christ in our marriages, in our relationships, in our workplaces, the foundation of Christ that you and I have to build. 
But no one can lay any other foundation on that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. For if any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, and straw, his work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. Now that word day there is talking about a specific day. It's talking about a specific time. That day will bring it to light. For it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. For if what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself might be saved, but only as one who is escaping from the flames. Now the Bible is very clear. The New Testament is very clear that every person on this earth, when we die, will stand in judgment before God. It's not a question. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, Just as man is destined to die once, after that he is to face judgment. We call that judgment the great white throne judgment. And it's described in the book of Revelation. Every person, the Bible says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We'll either do it this side of eternity or we'll do it on that side of eternity. And if you wait to do it on that side, there are consequences when we stand before God in judgment. Listen to John describe this judgment, the picture that he saw. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for him. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. That's every person on this earth. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in this book. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And the death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, for the lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now the Bible tells us this great white throne judgment is a time when you and I will give an account for what we've done with Jesus Christ. See, at this great white throne judgment, when we stand before God, it's not going to matter our good works. It's not going to matter our good intentions. It's not going to matter how, how, what type of home we were raised in or how many times we came to church or how much we wrote on our checks to the church or how many good things that we did. The only criteria that will stand in this great white throne judgment is whether your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the only way to get your name written in that book is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ by asking Him to be your Lord and Savior. You don't get your name written in that book by being religious or by by being good. It is only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. So it doesn't matter what else you think in your mind, that that it's good enough and you can try hard enough. The Bible's very clear that there is only one way, and that is Jesus Christ writing your name in His book. The Bible says everyone whose name is not written in that book will be cast into an eternity separated from God. We call that hell. Now you can debate what hell looks like or what hell is like, and people, I've heard preachers get up and preach whole sermons on describing hell. I don't, I don't talk a lot about hell because I don't want people to choose Jesus Christ because they're afraid of hell. Hell is going to be torment. Hell is going to be anguish. But I think the most difficult thing of hell will be God's presence will not be there. It'll be the absence of God's presence. Because you see, even on this earth, if you're not a Christian... If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, even on this earth, God's presence is still surrounding us. 
God's presence is still holding back evil. It is, it is tempering suffering. It is tempering pain. But there is coming a day when those who have never given their life to Jesus Christ will be cast away from God's presence for eternity. And it doesn't matter how often you cry out to Him, how often you want Him, He cannot hear you. So everyone whose name isn't in this book is cast away. But those whose name is in this book will live with God for eternity in heaven. Now please hear this. Heaven is not a reward for the Christian. Heaven is an inheritance. The Bible says when you ask Jesus Christ into your heart, you become a child of God with the very same inheritance that Jesus Christ had. That's what Paul was saying. I can now move from just saying, Father, uh, Dad, to calling you Abba which is daddy. It's an intimate picture that I'm part of the family. And the Bible tells us that everything that God gave Jesus, he now gives you and I as part of the family. And so us going to heaven is not some kind of reward that you've earned because you can't earn your way to heaven. It is an inheritance for being part of the family. Just like your parents passed on an inheritance to you, God gives us the inheritance that is heaven. But what Paul is talking about here is a second judgment that all of those who go through that great white throne judgment, he says, will one day stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for the way that we've lived our lives. Now this is where it gets confusing for some Christians because some Christians combine these, the two of these. Some Christians put this as one judgment and some Christians don't even emphasize this idea of standing before Jesus Christ and giving an account. Now, I told you before, this isn't a judgment of sin. This is a judgment of stewardship. I grew up thinking that we were going to stand before Jesus Christ someday, and it it always scared the daylights out of me because I thought everyone is going to be there. I mean, everyone in eternity. My grandma is going to be there. And that somehow I remember a preacher talking about all of our lives being shined on a big screen, and I thought there are a lot of things I don't want my grandma seeing on that big screen in heaven. But it's not about the things that we didn't do or did do in sin. Because the Bible says in that first judgment, our sins have been redeemed. We are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. What takes place at this second judgment is all of our life will be played according to how we lived it. What did we do as a Christian with all of the things that God's given us? 2 Corinthians 5.10 Paul writes this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us might receive that which is due him for the things done while in the body, both good and bad. See, the Christian life is not just about coasting till we get to the end. It's not about just having a get-out-of-hell-free card and just waiting, buying your time till the end comes. If that was the case, then God would have taken you to heaven the moment you accepted him. The Christian life for you and I is about us applying God's Word to become more like Jesus Christ every day in how we live. Becoming more like Jesus Christ in how we think, in how we act, in how we interact with those around us. And the Bible is clearly saying, and Paul is saying in graphic details, that you and I will give an account for what we do with what we've been given. For how we have lived that life. Now, some of you may have heard especially some of you old-timers, and I won't tell you what age old-timers starts, but some of you older people may have heard this called the Bema Seat of Christ. 
That we will stand before the Bema seat. I think there's a couple of old gospel hymns about standing before the Bema seat. Well, Bema is a Greek term that describes what took place in Roman and Greek cities. In Roman and Greek cities, in the center of town, there was a platform that was called the Bema. And every public pronouncement, every public judgment, every public award was given from the Bema. It was at this place where, where they would pronounce criminals who had been convicted, where they would give awards to those who had done good things. And so when you approach the Bema seat, when you approach that Bema as a Greek or Roman citizen, you could either go with trembling and fear or you could go with joy and excitement. It all matters on what you've done that brought you to the Bema. And that's the picture that Paul is painting here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that all of us one day will come before God, come before our Savior Jesus Christ that bought us with His blood, and we'll give an account for those things that we did in His name. Now understand, we're not going to be judged compared to other people. You're, you're not going to be judged compared to me. I'm not going to be judged compared to other pastors or preachers or missionaries. You're not going to be judged compared to your neighbor. You're going to be judged compared to you. You see, the standard that you and I will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account is how He sees us, what He's gifted us with, what He's called us to do. And you and I are going to stand before God and, and look at all the things that we could have done, all the things that we should have done, all the things that, that God called us to do, that God gifted us to do. And we will realize those things compared to what we really did. And it's in that moment that all of those things will be judged. All of those things that we've been gifted with will be judged. Now, now Paul here in our passage gives two descriptors, two categories. He says everything that we do in life is, either fits into two categories. Either it's gold and silver and, and precious stones, and those are things that we invest our life in that count for eternity. Those are things that, that we do that give glory to God and extend His kingdom. Those are things that we think, and those are things that we act upon that bring glory to God. So you have all gold and silver and costly stones. And then he said on the other side, you have hay and wood and straw. And those are the things that we do out of selfish ambition. Those are the things that we do to glorify self. Those are the things that we do to say, this is what I want. This is what I think is best. This is what I'm doing. And Paul says everything that we do in life, every action, every thought will fit into one of those two categories. Now just think about that. Just think about this morning. I mean, let's not go through your whole life. Let's just think about the last three hours, if you were up for three hours. Think about the last three hours. Everything that you said, everything that you did, everything that you thought, every action, which pile would a majority of those things fall in? See, Paul is wanting to recognize, us to recognize, that our actions and our thoughts have consequences. It's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when He said this in Matthew 6, 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where the moth and the rust destroys or where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. For the things that you spend your time, talent, and treasure on, that's where your heart is. And he's saying, why invest in things that can get stolen and destroyed? Those are the, the hay and the wood and the, the straw. 
Why not invest in things that count for eternity? Why not spend your life investing in things that one day will stand the test of time before God? I can't imagine what a waste of a life lived on earth only to discover when we stand before Jesus Christ that we have invested all of our time, all of our talent, and all of our treasure on things that in heaven's eyes are worthless. Now, when we think about in context... This idea of standing before God and giving account, it's wise of us to think back to what we've been studying. This whole chapter, chapter 2 into chapter 3, Paul has been arguing about God's wisdom, the way God works, the way God thinks, and the way God operates, versus man's wisdom, the way the world operates, and the way the world judges. And it's good for us to think, because what happens is, and, and I told you to think about two piles, some of you, in your mind began to rationalize how what might be in this bad pile could somehow make it into this good pile. But you see, what Paul's been warning us is, is to be very careful how we think because God's thoughts, God's ways are not our ways. You see, man judges and man gives according to results. Man's wisdom says all that matters is results. All that matters is what you show up with at the end, right? He who dies with the most wins. The ends justify the means. It's all about how we have results in life. In God's wisdom, it's not always results that count. It's obedience over results. See, sometimes in God's thinking, it's not the ends justifying the means... It's the means being more important than the end. See, God's not always interested in results. God's more interested in whether you were obedient to what He did. Because the results in many of our actions are up to Him. See, it's not about you witnessing to somebody and leading them to Christ. You can't force somebody to make a decision for Christ. We talked last week about your responsibility as parents and, and sharing with your kids and having an opportunity to get them where they can be exposed to the gospel. You can't have your kids come to know Christ. They have to make that decision. That's the result. That's up to God. What you are responsible for is being obedient to do everything you can to get them there. Remember, I've given you the definition of obedience so many times, you should have it hammered in your head, and if you're a parent, it should be on your refrigerator. Obedience is doing what you're told, when you're told, with the right heart attitude. Now, all of you were nodding when I said what you're told, when you're, when you're told, but when I got to that right heart attitude, everybody looked down. Because that's what gets us most of the time. Many times, we don't have any problem doing what we're told, when we're told. We just don't have a good attitude about it. And you see, in God's economy, it's all about the attitude. Because if you remove any of those three elements from obedience, then it's not obedience. And I've given you an illustration before about my dad telling me to take out the trash or mow the grass. I hated both of them growing up. Still hate both of them, if I'm honest. My dad would say, I want you to go out and mow the yard. Okay, Dad, I'll get to it. He'd come back by a couple hours later. How come the yard isn't mowed? I'll get to it. That's not obedience because I didn't do what I was told when I was told. But there were times my dad had a great way of helping me to understand how to mow the grass. On Saturday morning, he was a morning person. He would get up. My window faced the front of our house. He would start the mower, push it in front of my window, and leave it going. 
as a reminder, it was time for me to get up and mow the grass. And so I would get up on Saturday morning angry and upset, and I would be out there mowing the grass and rutting his pretty yard as I mowed the grass and mad. And I would come in and say, I mowed the grass. And he'd say, no, you didn't. You butchered the grass. That wasn't obedience. I may have done what I was told when I was told, but I didn't have the right heart attitude. You see, in God's economy, why we do things is just as important as what we do. And God judges our hearts, and God judges our motives. And so many times as Christians, and this flies in the face of legalism, because legalism is all about just doing the right acts. And we get caught up in religious activity, and we think, if I only just do the right things, okay, yes, the pastor said we're supposed to give. I'll write a check, and I don't want... That's not obedience. It's better you didn't do it. Yeah, this week's nursery duty, and I've I got to be down there with little kids, and I can't stand it, and I don't like Then don't do it, because that's not obedience. That's not faithfulness. What God is looking for in you and I, what we will give an account for when we stand before God, is not just what we did, but why we did it. I think I've shared with you before, nothing can sweep gold and silver and costly stones over into this other pile faster than bad motives and bad attitudes. I'll give you an example. One that may sound good. It even sounds spiritual. Let's say I'm at the grocery store during the week. I'm at food line. And I'm shopping. And I come to check out. And there's a lady checking out before me. And the Holy Spirit convicts me. You need to buy her groceries. The first thing that's going to go through my mind is surely that's not God telling me to buy her groceries, right? Let's be honest. But it's the Holy Spirit. And so I just lean forward and say, man, God's told me that I need to buy your groceries. Can I do that? Or even better, if I can buy the person behind me, then just give money and say, listen, put this to the person behind me. God told me to get their groceries. Obedience. Gold, silver, costly stones. And I come back here to the office and I go into the office feeling good. I did what God told me to do. Praise the Lord. I was obedient. Maybe I can be obedient in bigger things. And Blake walks out of his office and says, Rusty, hey, you want to go eat lunch? I'd really like to, but you see, I just had to buy this lady's groceries at the grocery store because God put it on my heart. I mean, faster than the Sandman at the Apollo Theater. You just push, some of you don't get that, but you just push this stuff all the way over real quick. God tells you to forgive somebody, and so you say, okay, I'm going to forgive them, and I'm going to forget all about what they did that hurt me. And So you forgive them, whether it's vocally or it's in your heart, and you forgive them, and you're feeling so good about yourself. I did what God told me to do, and, and it's all going to be gold and silver and costly stones, and then all of a sudden somebody brings something up in a situation or circumstance a year later or five years later, and you go back and mention that behavior or that action that you had already forgiven. Shows you didn't forgive them. See, you and I need to understand motives matter in the kingdom of God. And everything that we do is is not going to be judged by man. It's going to be judged by a holy and righteous God that sees your heart, that knows what's going on in your heart. Paul tells us that for everything that we are obedient in, everything that we are faithful in, that we invest in eternal things, we will be rewarded, but everything else will be counted worthless in heaven. 
He's telling us here that it's very clear that the degree in which I live like Jesus will determine the degree in which I am rewarded by Jesus. So what are those rewards? What do we get when we stand before God? Well, the Bible tells us in the parable of the, the talents. You remember Jesus telling us the parable of the talents, which goes a lot closer to this, where he gives one man one talent, which was the money, gives another man five, another man 15. He leaves to see what they do. Well, the Bible says when he comes back, and the one who had invested what he'd been given, Jesus said, well done, my good and faithful servant. So it's pretty clear that when we stand before God, one of the rewards we'll get for being faithful and obedient to God is to hear our Lord and Savior look you in the eye and say, well done. Listen, you think it's great when a coach tells you well done, when a teacher tells you good job, or when your parent pats you on the back? Imagine the creator of the universe, the one who died on the cross, looking you in the eye and saying, well done. I'm proud of you. And those words will ring to your ear for eternity. That's one of the rewards. But one of the other things that the Bible teaches that there are several instances in the Bible, and especially Paul gives us some illustration to that, is that there are crowns that we will receive in heaven. Listen to Paul in 2 Timothy 4. For I have fought the good fight. This is his last letter. He's about to die. He's in Rome, about to be killed for the cause of Christ. He said, I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only me, but also to those who have loved his appearing. It's pretty clear that somehow part of that reward is going to be a crown of some sort. He tells us again in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Not everybody gets a trophy in heaven. Run in such a way as to get the prize. For everyone who competes in the games, talking about the Olympics, goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. The Bible says our reward in heaven will first be hearing, Well done, thy good and faithful servant, when God judges all of our actions. And the second will be crowns of reward. Now, before you start counting your crowns or counting the jewels in your crown, let me remind you what happens to those crowns. See, John, when he ventured in and got a glimpse of what heaven was, he actually saw heavenly worship taking place around the throne of God. Listen to him describe it. Whenever the living creatures, this is Revelation 4, give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, and that is representative of all mankind, fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns down before the throne, saying, You are worthy, our Lord God, and glory and honor and power to You. So all of those rewards that we get, that well done, now good and faithful servant, whatever it means to get a crown, and, and we don't really know what that means, but there is going to come a time where we are going to take all of those things that we did for the glory of God on this earth, that we get rewarded in heaven, and we are going to bow before Him. And those very things that we did to give glory to God here on earth become a tangible evidence of giving glory to God in heaven for eternity. Can you imagine everything that we ever did that God says well done for and we are rewarded for. There is going to come a day when we get around the throne with all of eternity and they begin to sing worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb who was and is and is to come. And we can take whatever it is reward we've got and say, God, it's all yours. We lay those trophies down. We give them to Him. And I don't, I don't think we know 
what those crowns are going to look like, but we do know for fact what's going to happen to those who are not rewarded. Paul says in our passage that they will escape, but barely, as one who just gets out of the fire. It doesn't affect your salvation, but there is going to be some torment, some anguish. Matter of fact, the Bible says in Revelation 21 that Jesus Christ will wipe away every tear. And the interesting thing about that happening in Revelation 21 is that takes place after the Bema Seat of Jesus to indicate that there is a time when Christians will have tears in heaven. Well, why in the world would Christians cry in heaven? I believe it's when we stand before God and think of all the opportunities we had all the people we could have made a difference in their life. And I think that's what we'll see. God will say, see this guy you sat behind in class that was crying out for, for help? You were more interested in your time and your schedule. See, see that person that you drove by every day? See that person that you worked with? See those times in your family that you could have invested in eternity, that you could have invested in hope and grace and mercy and love, and instead you were selfish? And we're going to see all of those things played out, all of those things that I could have been if I just would have been obedient to God, all of the lives that I could have reached. The Bible says there's going to be tears in heaven before Jesus dries those tears. See, the main thing Paul wants us to understand is that this is not a dress rehearsal. We're not just buying our time till the end comes. It counts and how we live and why we live have eternal consequences. Paul says, run the race. Seek to be obedient. Listen to his voice. Check your heart. Check your motivation. Make the most of every opportunity that God gives you. When God calls you to do something, regardless of whether it seems big or it seems little, because everything counts. In God's economy, in God's wisdom, there are no little roles. There are no little jobs. There are no little opportunities. Each one of them counts for the kingdom of God. You know, most of us in this room have probably never heard of a man by the name of Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher of junior high boys in the 19th century at a very small church in the Midwest of the United States. Doesn't seem like he had a significant part to play in the kingdom. He taught middle school boys Sunday school. And listen, I've taught middle school boys Sunday school. That is not a glory job. But he took it serious. And he loved those boys. There was one boy in particular that was on his heart. And each week he would pray for him and he would share with him. But he didn't feel like he felt like this boy was just slipping away. So so one day during the week he went to visit where that boy had a part-time job. He was stocking shoes at a shoe store and he went and he poured out his heart to this young man and that young boy gave his life to Jesus Christ that young boy's name was D.L. Moody D.L. Moody became one of the most famous preachers and evangelists in the 19th century he preached to thousands of people on both continents America and Europe thousands came to know Christ all because a junior high Sunday school teacher didn't think his job was insignificant and was obedient to give it everything he had. But that's not the end of his legacy. You see, while D.L. Moody was preaching, there was a man by the name of Wilbur Chapman that came to know Christ and surrendered to ministry. And Wilbur Chapman became one of the most well-known pastors in his day, preaching to thousands. It was while Wilbur Chapman was preaching 
One Sunday that a professional baseball player had the day off and decided to go to church. He was struggling with the purpose of his life. And while he was in church, while Chapman was preaching, Chapman who came to know the Lord under Moody, while he's preaching, this young baseball player accepted Jesus Christ and gave his life to God. His name was Billy Sunday. And he quit baseball and became an evangelist and began to preach all over the country. In one of his revival services, there was a young man by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was a college-age student, and he was listening to Sunday preach, and it was while he was preaching that Mordecai Ham got convicted, and he accepted Jesus Christ and surrendered to ministry and decided to preach himself. And Mordecai Ham, who got saved because of Billy Sunday, who got saved because of Wilbur Chapman, who got saved because of D.L. Moody, who got saved all because Edward Kimball was faithful to his job, was preaching a revival service at the beginning of the 20th century in Charlotte, North Carolina, when a young high school student by the name of Billy Graham gave his life to Jesus Christ. You see, for you and I, Edward Kimball means nothing. In this world, he was a junior high Sunday school teacher. But can you imagine what his legacy is in heaven? From something that you and I would think it's not even a big deal. He just taught junior high Sunday school. But he took it serious enough to give it everything that he had and pour himself into those kids. There are no little opportunities. And because of him, all the people that came to know Christ under D.L. Moody, all of the people that came to know Christ under Billy Sunday, all the people that came to know Christ under Campbell and under Ham and under Billy Graham, and that legacy continues, all of those people in heaven can give thanks Because Edward Kimball was faithful. Because he didn't measure jobs according to the world's standards. He measured it according to being obedient to God. Maybe it's time for you and I to invest in some of the things that God's given you in things that count. Maybe it's time you and I begin to invest what God has gifted us with in things that have eternal value. Because you see, God has a plan for everyone in this room. And there are no insignificant jobs and there are no insignificant tasks. It's all a matter of whether you're going to be obedient. And the question God asks for us is, are you willing? My prayer is one day that everyone in this room would hear, well done, that good and faithful servant. But I believe even in this room, there's somebody whose spiritual legacy could be even greater than Edward Kimball if you're just obedient. Let's pray.